0: uh for me you know for for the ten and a half years as the police chief i think the only thing i think i left unfilled was to finish this job off people may think what were they doing over the 10 years they were doing everything they could humanly possibly do following every lead that they could and using modern technology to bring this to a close and, and i just can't tell you how proud i am of chief capri and how proud i am of the men and women of the daytona beach police department
1: that was volusia county sheriff mike chitwood telling a captive media that a suspect has been named in a 14-year-old cold case out of Daytona Beach. Authorities believe they have identified and captured the Daytona serial killer. That story and more are coming up on the 75th episode of Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News-Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. Later in this episode, I'll discuss the unsolved murder case of Susan Perkins, a young mother of two who was abducted along with her friend at a day spa in Altamont Springs and ordered into the trunk of a car. Perkins popped open the trunk from the inside and both she and her friend jumped out. But Perkins died from the injuries she suffered during her escape. My special guest for that segment will be Perkins' sister, Sarah Wakefield, along with Altamont Springs police detective, Bill Nuzzy. But first, an update on one of the biggest cold cases to ever come out of Daytona Beach. Police announced last month they have a suspect in the slangs of four local prostitutes and one South Florida prostitute. Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood will join me next, along with two of my former News Journal colleagues, Lita Longa and Seth Robbins.
2: Well, Tony, i got to tell you, I was thrilled. Um, Like I said, I was driving with my husband, and I got the news over the phone, and I was just, like, like kind of on a natural high for the rest of the day because I couldn't believe it had happened. And, you know, uh, uh, I was really, a part of me wished that I was back there so I could write about it, you know, Um, because I always wanted to see the resolution of that case. You know, I'm a news junkie, so... When I heard that, it's like the biggest news I had heard that day. And I even shared it with a couple of people here in Arizona that I've become friendly with. And they, they wanted me to tell them the whole story. They were thrilled. So it's, it, I was just ecstatic that day when I heard that. And I was very, very happy
1: about it. That was Lita Longa, former crime reporter at the Daytona Beach News Journal. Nobody has reported more about the Daytona serial killer case than her. I profiled the DSK case in episode 16 of Suncrime State. Among my guests for that episode, in addition to Lita, was cold case investigator Al McAvoy, who once served as police commissioner in Yonkers, New York. McAvoy was asked by then-police chief Mike Chitwood to help with the agency's cold case load, and the case he wanted him to focus on the most was DSK. When I interviewed McAvoy in December 2017, he was positive that the killer would eventually be caught.
3: No one's been brought to justice on this case yet. A lot of forensics have been developed on the case. And I believe that one day this, uh, you know, the break will come.
1: Talk about prescient. On September 15th, Palm Beach County Sheriff's deputies arrested 37-year-old Robert Hayes and charged him in the March 2016 slang of 32-year-old Rachel Bay, who was slain outside Jupiter, about 185 miles south of Daytona Beach. Police have said that ballistics and DNA testing have linked Hayes to three of the Daytona prostitute murders. Another of my former colleagues at the News Journal, Seth Robbins, also knows the case well. Both he and Lita wrote up to 50 stories about it. Lita now lives in Arizona, while Seth lives in Columbia. Both were gracious enough to talk to me over the phone last week about the DSK case. Lita was among the first outside of law enforcement to learn about the latest break. She got a call from the sister-in-law of DSK's first victim.
2: She told me that they had gotten a call that morning from a Daytona detective telling her that they had gotten him. And I said, What do you mean they got him? And she said, Well, they got the serial killer. and uh, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I've been waiting for this for several years, as you know, and uh, I, it just blew my mind when I heard
1: that. Seth was just as surprised as Lita was when he learned that a suspect was named in the slangs.
4: I'm amazed by it, to be
1: quite honest.
4: I really was one of those people, I think, who thought that this was something that was never going to be solved. Um, It had been such a long time, and uh, there had never really been any good leads on the case, uh, especially when, you know, after uh, it had gone cold. um, We didn't hear much about it, uh, though though we always were, were asking questions about it. And I remember when we were reporting on it, there wasn't that much information. Um, Now, whether that was by design by the police,
1: uh, who knows? The first known victim of DSK was 55-year-old Laquita Gunther. Gunther was found shot to death the day after Christmas 2005. She was partially clothed, and she was lying in a fetal position in a walkway between two buildings in the 700 block of North Beach Street. A customer stopped by a car parts store on that block, discovered that the shop was closed, and then saw the body. Detectives said Gunther's body had been lying there for two days before it was noticed, so Gunther was shot and killed on Christmas Eve. Here is Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood telling me about that discovery.
0: The first victim was killed around Christmas in 2005 she was killed off of B Street in a very narrow alleyway. And it, seeing how big she is, it, it, it really boggles the mind because the, the alleyway is probably two and a half feet.
3: Uh, it's where
0: they store the lifeguard towers in the winter. Um, she was shot once in the back of the head. Her clothing was folded neatly in, neatly in front of her. And she was face down and DNA was recovered from her, from her mouth.
1: Seth Robbins was working the night cop's desk for the News Journal in late 2005. He wrote a story about the body being found, and the next day canvassed the area of US-1, known as Ridgewood Avenue, and he tried to find people who knew Gunther. He visited a dive called Willie's Bar and Game Room, where he encountered a number of people who knew and adored Laquita. A few days after Laquita's body was found, the news journal published Seth's story that included quotes from those sources who agreed to speak to him on the record.
4: You know, we went to this bar that was near uh, the train tracks over there, a uh, really rough place. Um, but the, the people there remembered her uh, well, obviously. They knew her well, and they were the ones who, who sort of gave me an in uh, to her her life. In, in this story, now reading it again, I remember them talking about her as being brash and, and this kind of strong woman who who would uh, take on anybody.
1: One of the people quoted in the piece said the bar became a house full of tears and shock after word got out about Laquita's murder. Laquita was a fighter, Literally. She stood nearly six feet tall and would not hesitate to take a swing at someone, male or female, if she felt challenged, insulted, or backed into a corner. She drank. She loved country music. She was a mother who ceded custody of her child to the boy's father. After her ex died, the boy was raised by his father's first wife, not by Laquita. Her friends and family admitted that Laquita's life was being dragged down by her drug addiction. Her drug of choice was crack cocaine. She would turn to prostitution when she needed money to prolong her habit. She was down and out, but she had people who loved her and pulled for her. The same went for DSK's second victim, Julie Green. The 34-year-old mother of four was murdered January 14, 2006, The two killings were three weeks apart. Green's body was found in a ditch at a construction site near LPGA Boulevard, a well-traveled road that runs east and west and intersects with Ridgewood Avenue, a corridor that was heavy with streetwalkers at the time. Green, like Gunther, had turned to prostitution to fund her drug habit. Seth interviewed one of Green's older sisters and some of her friends, they painted a picture of a young woman with unlimited potential. She was free spirited and talented. Drugs ruined her. I remember talking to her sister quite a bit. And
4: it was also that, that same sort of story. Like, this was a, she was younger um, than Laquita and seemed to have a little more, uh, not, not, uh, you know, a, a life ahead of her if she was able to to kick drug addiction. You know, her sister remembered her as, you know, very lively. And uh, this, this young girl who, who loved to sing and seemed to have a lot of energy. Her friends uh, remembered her
1: that way as well. When she was a child, Julie's father died. At five years old, her mother remarried and moved from Jacksonville to Daytona Beach. Her mother died when Julie was about eight and her stepfather adopted her. Things took a turn for the worse when Julie turned 12. She struggled in school, was held back twice, and eventually ran away from home. The one father figure in Julie's life never stopped trying. Julie's oldest sister told Seth that Doug, the girl's stepfather, loved Julie, and that Julie loved him back. Julie just had a wild, stubborn streak. If she made up her mind to do something, no one was going to talk her out of it. Seth remembers trying to interview Doug.
4: I remember walking up to his house, and he was quite shaken up by, by uh, the killing, obviously. And uh, he didn't want to talk about it. He, he was just had, had uh, tears kind of pooling in his eyes. But uh, Julie's sister was very open with me, and I, I appreciated that. Um, because obviously no one wants to have their their sister remembered as a prostitute. But I think uh, these friends and family members, when I talk to them, the the reason they wanted to talk is that they wanted people to understand that they they were more than just prostitutes. They were they were human beings, obviously, and they were they had full lives and and they had uh, you know heartbreak and and things that uh, cause them to to spiral.
1: Seth's story on Julie Green was a tearjerker. The last quote in the story came from Julie's big sister, who said, quote, I just would like to be able to put my arms around her one more time and see that cute little girl. In a story published by the news journal three days after Julie Green's death, Lita quoted a local detective who said there is no evidence that a serial killer was on the loose, but he did admit that the two murders appear to have been committed by the same person. The killer struck again six weeks later. Whether the police were going to agree to it or not, the media started referring to the unknown suspect as a serial killer. On February 24th, 2006, police discovered the body of Awana Patton. Police received a call from a man at a payphone who gave them instructions on where to find Patton's body, which was lying on a dirt road along North Williamson Boulevard near the corner of Mason Avenue, not far from where I now live, and where the Daytona Beach Police Headquarters is now located. Patton's relatives did not agree to any interviews, so her background isn't as well-known as the other victims'. We do know that Patton would occasionally visit the Homeless Assistance Center where Gunther often had meals, and she would pick up her mail there. Patton was a nurse at an assisted living facility in Port Orange. Her brother was a law enforcement officer in the Orlando area. Investigators concluded that Patton didn't do much prostitution. She resorted to it after things got dire in her life. Her car was found a few days after her body was found. It was parked behind a speech therapy center on Ridgewood Avenue, so it seems likely she was picked up there by her killer and taken to the area where she was shot. Here again is Sheriff Chitwood.
0: Awana Patton was killed out by where the new police station is. I think she was killed out at Mason and Williamson. She was shot in the face while she was naked and had socks on just like the other two victims did it appears that there was a struggle so she probably knew what was about to happen and was probably running away or trying to break away he grabbed her pulled her toward him and that's when he we believe theoretically is when he shot her in the face
1: and killed her all three victims were killed by a 40 caliber round national media caught wind of the killings A national magazine did a story about it and dubbed the then-unknown suspect as the streetwalker stalker. News Journal columnist Mark Lane wrote in a piece recently that Nancy Grace, while the host of her own show on CNN Headline News back then, declared that women in Daytona Beach were, quote, dropping like flies. Historically, the city of Daytona Beach is known to be a place where serial killers roam. Some of Florida's most notorious killers have lived and or killed in Volusia County. Eileen Warnos, Otis Toole, Oba Chandler, Gerald Stano, Gary Ray Bowles. Even Ted Bundy got kind of close when he tried to abduct a teen girl outside a shopping plaza in Jacksonville, about 90 minutes north of here. The slangs also gave the local media a compelling reason to take a deeper dive into the, quote, red light district of Daytona Beach. US-1 cuts through the city just to the west of the Halifax River. The US-1 corridor through Daytona, Ridgewood Avenue, is an area that has its share of derelict buildings. These days, you can still see prostitution there from time to time. Police conduct an undercover sting, and then it goes away for a while. But over time, it comes back. But back in 2005 and 2006, prostitution was a far more significant problem. Seth was one of those reporters who wrote lots of stories about that part of town.
4: That that area of Ridgewood was really, obviously really rough. And I think maybe the difference between now and then is... You know, you didn't have I sound uh, like everybody else, but you didn't have social media, but you didn't have people meeting in secret uh, as much. There were streetwalkers. And I, I don't think you see that as much in in on Ridgewood anymore. But I used to see them all the time. That's how I met Tara. Um, and I always felt for them. Uh a, because they, they were women, and, and the, like you said, that was a, a really rough area. And, I, you know, you never wanted to see them there um, because you knew if they, they were walking, uh, things had gone badly.
1: It was a vicious cycle of drug abuse and prostitution for the likes of Gunther, Green, and Patton. Seth, during his reporting, interviewed a woman named Tara, who was the daughter of a new Smyrna Beach police officer. Tara was a prostitute and a crack addict. Not long after Seth interviewed her for his 2006 story, she took her own life. Seth's stories about her and the other women who lived and worked along Ridgewood made a lasting impression on him.
4: In that area, when you would see women walking the streets, they were often uh, addicted to drugs and they did lead these, these sort of these really hard lives um and they they often fell into prostitution i guess that's probably the way most most women uh, fall into it but you know life on on ridgewood avenue was hard scrabble and uh i felt for all those women over there
1: the news journal continued publishing stories about the murders any perceived development was pounced on, but really, there wasn't much. Months went by, and then a year. The two-year anniversary of Laquita Gunther's slang was looming, and it appeared the killer had moved on. Then came the murder of Stacy Gage. She was last seen by friends and family on December 10, 2007. Her grandmother reported her missing about a week later. She waited that long because it wasn't unlike Gage to disappear for days at a time. She was much like the other victims. She had a history of drug abuse and run-ins with the law. It wasn't until January 2nd that her decomposed body was found. Stacy Gage was seen lying behind a church on Hancock Boulevard in Daytona, about two and a half miles west of Ridgewood. From the start... Chitwood believed Gage's killer was DSK. As time went on, people close to the investigation were starting to become less convinced. Gage wasn't known to be a prostitute, and her body's severe decomposition in the elements meant there was no DNA at the scene. Additionally, the gun used on her was not a 40 caliber weapon. When I did my first podcast on this case nearly two years ago, the folks I interviewed were mostly on the fence about whether the Gage murder case could be lumped in with the murder cases for Gunther, Green, and Patton. But the leadership at the Daytona Beach Police Department at the time was always convinced that Gage was killed by the same man as the other three. Here again is Seth Robbins.
4: They were always convinced that this was a serial killer and i think it would have been much easier for them to say oh no these were separate murders uh they you know they had nothing to do with each other you know we didn't because i would imagine uh, you know who wants to to be known for having a serial killer in uh, in their midst but they they were always adamant that these these cases were linked
1: current daytona beach police chief craig capri told me recently that he is certain that all four women were murdered by the same man there isn't any evidence tying Hayes to gauge yet but the chief seemed confident that day was coming it will take a lot of time and a lot of work but he's convinced detectives will make that link chitwood who told the media in january 2008 that he believed dsk killed gage is still every bit as sure today
0: i i feel in my gut that he murdered Stacey Gage. You know, I was the police chief there for 10 and a half years, about uh, six, about seven months before I got hired is when the when gunner was killed, and then uh, uh, Julie Green, then I Patton. And then, then it goes dormant for about a, a year or so, a little over a year, and then he kills again. Julie was found with her socks on, naked. We never found her clothes, uh, and a small caliber gunshot wound to the head. Uh, Julie was fairly decomposed. We know she was last seen alive on December 24th, uh, twenty fourth, twenty twenty seven or two thousand seven, and she was found in early January, maybe January, the first week in January, January, around January fifth or fifth through the eighth. But it was a really, really warm December, and she decomposed pretty rapidly. So, it, my gut tells me it's him, even though there's no there's nothing to tie him into it. But he knew by the time I got there in 2006 that a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson was used with a murder weapon. Um, he knew that we had his DNA. So all that was publicized stuff. And, uh, you know, he showed that he can change his method of operation.
1: The suspect is accused of committing one more killing in Jupiter three years ago. The victim in that case, Rachel Bay, was strangled not shot. If Robert Hayes was willing to change from fatally shooting his first few victims to strangling the one believed to have been his last, then it wouldn't be too far-fetched to suggest he would change weapons between the third and the fourth victim. That's what police think. Another revelation came out following the news of Hayes' arrest. Daytona police had actually questioned him. He was brought in not once, but twice, once in 2005 and again in 2006. Robert Hayes, who is now 37 years old, was in his mid-20s at the time when the Daytona killings took place. When police questioned him, they were inquiring about the 40 caliber firearm he had purchased at a nearby gun store just prior to the murders. Details of those interviews aren't known. But there are no indications that police surveilled him or kept track of him after those conversations between him and detectives. And they certainly didn't take a DNA sample from him. Here is Sheriff Chitwood talking more about the suspect, from the allegations against him in Palm Beach to how that killing was vastly different from those in Daytona.
0: And then when you look at what happened in Palm Beach uh, County, I mean, you know, a woman's body in a ditch, and they were able to recover DNA off the back of her hand uh, that, that led him, led to the arrest of Bay. And I think the important thing here is, you know, you had a serial killer who was on a spree. He killed in late 05, early 06, and he used a distinctive firearm, 42 caliber of like the and then he changed his whole M.O. You know, when they find the last victim in Palm Beach County, uh, there's no DNA from having sex, and he strangled her. And, and if you think of that, to manually strangle somebody, the rage and the strength and the hatred that you must have, because it, it doesn't, you don't strangle somebody in a matter of minutes. You, you strangle them in maybe 12 to 20 minutes it takes to actually kill somebody through manual strangulation. Where here in Daytona, he was very impersonal, you know, although he had sex with two of the victims, and he just put a bullet in the back of their head and
1: ended it. Hayes was arrested September 15th at his West Palm Beach home and charged with first-degree murder. As of Saturday, he still hadn't been charged in any of the Daytona slayings. He remains held without bail in a South Florida jail. The long-awaited break in the case was thrilling for Chitwood, who began serving as police chief in Daytona soon after the Patton murder.
0: I feel a sense of relief, and I feel mission accomplished. All the hard work that was put in since 2005 by a plethora of detectives uh, from the Daytona Beach Police Department, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, all of the all of the extra operations that we ran, the prostitution operations, trying to collect DNA. The State Attorney, RJ Larissa, you know, uh, we we were working with familiar DNA back in, like, 2012, 2014.
1: Familial DNA. That's the way authorities nabbed their suspect, just like investigators did in California last year when they arrested the man they have identified as the Golden State Killer. One theory back in 2006 was that DSK could have been a police officer or a former police officer. One of the reasons for that is the notion that only a seemingly trustworthy man could lure street-smart women like Laquita Gunther and Julie Green into his car. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement took DNA samples from a lot of people, including cops. Here again is Lita Longa.
2: Laquita's friend had mentioned that Both her and Green, uh, Julie Green, would not have gotten into a car with somebody they didn't really know that well. I mean, they were obviously, they were you know prostitutes, but they wouldn't have gotten into a car with somebody if they hadn't seen him around. And I guess this guy, you know, he was young. He's not a bad looking guy. Uh, He probably was very friendly and very charming. And they, you know, they said, oh, yeah, here's a young guy. And yeah, he was studying to be a cop or, you know, something in the law enforcement field. And yeah, there was, there was commentary going around at that time that, that it could be a cop or even somebody from the military, you know, and as you know, they took DNA from many, many cops at that time.
1: Hayes was an undergrad at Bethune-Cookman University, a historically black college in Daytona Beach. In a statement soon after the news broke about the arrest, a university spokeswoman confirmed that Hayes attended BCU from 2000 to 2006, at which time he graduated with a degree in criminal justice. Hayes was a cheerleader at BCU, but had the size to be on the field playing linebacker. He stands six feet, four inches tall and weighs 220 pounds. One former police chief told me in an interview recently that DSK had to have been a strong man because prostitutes are known to fight back, especially when they sense danger. Hayes' DNA, according to authorities, was found on Gunther and Green while a ballistics match to Hayes' gun was made to Patton. While a student in Daytona, Hayes lived three-quarters of a mile from Ridgewood Avenue. Detectives said he prowled the area near his home to find his victims. The suspect in this case turned out to be very different compared to what people expected. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement in particular had a profiler draw up who the suspect likely was. That profiler submitted his report years ago to the Daytona Beach Police Department, and it described DSK as a middle-aged white man with marriage troubles. It was a swing and a miss.
2: I mean, the profile couldn't be more off. I was very surprised that he was that, well, not, I guess his age surprised me because I guess when he committed these crimes or was accused of committing these crimes he was in his early 20s. Um, the fact that he was a college student, you know, that's not a, a big issue, but, you know, I remember them saying it was a middle-aged white man who was married, who was, had an issue with his wife or with women, et cetera. And then I find out it's a black college student. Um, you know, it's, in, it's very, it's just, it was just so far afield And I don't think that, um, I don't think it's real common to see um, African Americans as serial killers. I mean, I've I've heard of a couple for sure, but usually, you know, in in the history of, you know, the the, the serial killers that we read about is usually middle-aged white men. So when you see a a young black man going to college, especially studying criminal justice, being the killer, it was like, wow, (laughs) that was a shocker.
1: Here is Sheriff Chitwood summing up the investigation into Hayes from the time he was first questioned 14 years ago to the time of his arrest.
0: It was a familial match that put him in as the suspect. It was a familial match that got everybody to look and say, "Okay, let's take a look." As they were drilling back down in the family tree, and then all of a sudden, before she pops off, he was interviewed once in 2005 and once in 2006 purchased the weapon used in Daytona, hey, this guy's looking really, really good. Now we gotta go out and get his DNA. And 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 Palm Beach County and FDLE did a phenomenal job. You know, they followed him around, he drank a beer, smoked a cigarette. Uh, they got once they got that they got confirmation not only from the familiar DNA side, but they got confirmation that the DNA matched two of, of the Daytona victims and the Palm Beach victims. And then they drug him in last Sunday morning with a search warrant and they did this, a buccal swab inside of his cheek, and that was 100% positive confirmation that, you know, his DNA was uh, on, on two of our uh, victims, uh, Gunner and Green, and the victim down in Palm Beach County.
1: Yeah, and there was a ballistics match with uh, the third victim, right? Is that
0: right? Uh, uh, Iwana Patton and Julie Green are linked together through ballistics, Laquita Gunner and Julie Green are linked together through DNA
1: the sheriff told me something was brewing in this case many months ago and he had always had the feeling that dna was going to be what broke the case wide open when did you catch wind that something was going to happen was it a few weeks ago a few days beforehand
0: uh it was probably about a year ago really probably about a year ago i knew that there was a murder in palm beach county it it piqued our interest and then in uh 2018 and they told me that they were narrowing in on a suspect. They had used one of the, I think it was Ancestry.com, but I don't want to get in trouble with Ancestry.com again, but they had used that format to submit the DNA that we had. Uh, You know, the DNA that we had back in 05 and 06, it was only a few strands of DNA. So it was difficult to do a lot with it um, other than match it to an individual. Today, a few strands of DNA, we can tell your eye color, hair color, uh, your your uh, race, everything. So uh, DNA has emerged so much since those early findings. I mean, when you look at the DNA, they got off the back of the last victim's hand. It couldn't have been many strands. You know, back in 05 and 06, you might have needed 100 strands to get a workup. But now you, you touch somebody, and that quickly, with, with a very few strands of DNA, you can get a, you can get a, a back and make up.
1: Here again is Lita Longa emphasizing how unlikely it seemed that a suspect would ever be named and how much this latest development means to those who cared for Laquita Gunther and the other victims.
2: She had a lot of friends in Daytona Beach and one in particular had her ashes in her it has her ashes in her house. And that woman um, has been, every single year, she'd go to the site where Laquita was murdered and put the wreath and, 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 have you know, she'd have a candlelight vigil, and she wanted this person caught, I think, more than even Laquita's family. And um, I know that those people are just, they're probably beside themselves with, uh, you know, with, with joy, because I don't think they ever thought this person was ever going to be caught. I mean, a lot of us thought that maybe this person was dead, you know, or... But, you know, to me, it's it's like a dream come true, really. I know to them as well, for sure, it's a dream come true.
1: Hayes is expected to be charged for a total of four murders, possibly as many as five. But there is also the lingering question of where Hayes was and what he was doing during that long gap between the Daytona killings and the Palm Beach killing.
0: He is really a sick, sick individual. And it'll be interesting when the investigation shows where he has been from 2007 through 2019.
1: As the DSK case moves forward, I will keep you updated. Coming up, the heartbreaking story of a single mother who was abducted while on a job and suffered fatal injuries while escaping her captor. The case remains unsolved. I will be joined by the victim's sister and the detective working the case.
3: As the investigator of this case, you know, I'm scheduled to retire within three years. Nothing would make me happier than to solve this case before I retire. It's very important to me.
1: That is Altamont Springs Police Detective Bill Nuzzi, who was leading the investigation into the murder of Susan Perkins, a Longwood mother of two who was killed 15 years ago after jumping out of her own moving car while her kidnapper was driving it. Susan Perkins was well-liked and highly thought of. She was a standout. The age-old cliche of being the kind of girl that guys want and the kind of girl that other girls want to be like is the one that perfectly describes Susan. She was very childlike, both in her appearance and her personality. There was an innocence about her, and her life was taken from her at the young age of 34. Susan was also a doting mother of two sons. Her family said she always put others first and was intensely focused on her work. Her mother, Bobby Boyer, Told the Orlando Sentinel in an article in 2004 that Susan, her middle child, was known for her smile and her laughter. When she walked into a room, everyone knew she was there. Susan's younger sister, Sarah Wakefield, spoke to me over the phone last week and spoke glowingly about her.
5: She was a cute little girl that grew into be a beautiful adult, um, both inside and out. My, I feel like my, my youngest or uh, my oldest daughter, actually, Helen, looks so much like my sister with the blonde hair and, and green eyes and, and beautiful smile. Uh, she was very humble, very, very patient. She was, you know, as the saying goes, never met a stranger. She was always the one that would listen, that would let people lean on her in times of need. Um, and she really liked being there for other people, which I think is one of the things that led her to where she was that night. She was she was helping a friend out.
1: After she turned 21, Susan often would hang out with her friends at a local bar called Kiwi's Pub and Grill. It was one of her favorite local hangouts. The employees and customers there were a tight-knit group. When people there learned about Susan's death, they sat and wept at the bar. Susan was close friends with Robin Barber who ran a day spa called TLC through Robin, which had just been relocated to an office complex on Maitland Avenue in Altamont Springs, a short distance north of the Orange County line. The day spa was about a year old, and Susan was there helping Robin install window tenting at the new location. Here again is Detective Nuzzi.
3: Susan was requested to come over and assist one of her friends at a day spot and tinting the windows there was a hurricane approaching and um they wanted to tint the windows in case the glass broke so she was in there after hours with her friend tinting the windows
1: floridians everywhere were feeling a lot of anxiety at the time as Nuzzy mentioned hurricane charlie had struck weeks earlier and they were preparing for francis to make landfall which by then was a Category 4 storm and was less than a week away from striking the east coast of Florida. Maitland Avenue and Altamont Springs, where Barber's business was located, is considered a low-crime section of town.
3: It's predominantly residential with a couple businesses sporadically mixed in. And of course, uh, Maitland Avenue is a, uh, we won't call it a major highway, but a main road, a main artery.
1: Around 9 p.m. on August 31, 2004, as the women were packing up for the day, a masked man walked into the business armed with a 22 caliber rifle. The suspect confronted Susan first and pointed his rifle at her. Presumably, because the gunman told her to, Susan called out to Robin, who was down the hallway in the rear area of the spa. Robin saw that Susan had a fearful expression on her face. Her entire body was shaking. At first, Robin couldn't believe what she was seeing. But after a moment, she realized that a man wearing a ski mask and holding a rifle was robbing her. The following is what Robin Barber described to police. Robin stepped forward with her hands in the air. She made sure to look downward. She did not want to look the gunman in the eyes because she didn't wanna make him uneasy. The man was anywhere from five foot seven to six feet tall. Even though the man was wearing a mask, it didn't appear as though the gunman was anyone Robin knew. The man in the mask demanded money. Here again is Detective Nuzzi.
3: Susan's purse was emptied inside the uh, day spa. And when Robin approached up, that's when uh, he ordered uh, both of them to get into a vehicle and take him to the bank to withdraw money.
1: According to Robin, she told the suspect she had no cash on her. He saw her wallet and told her, quote, You've got cards. Take me to the bank. Robin, who was forty one at the time, was a veteran of the US Marine Corps. She told the gunman to take Susan's money and leave. But he refused, and he kept his rifle pointed at Susan's head. The two women were led to Susan's 2001 Ford Focus. Susan got behind the wheel and Robin sat in the front passenger seat. The gunman sat in the back seat. The barrel of his rifle was between both seats. Robin told police she contemplated grabbing the rifle and shoving it upward, which would buy enough time for Susan to escape. But instead, Robin remained still. The three of them rode to Washington Mutual Bank at the corner of State Road 436 and Palm Springs Road, across from the Altamont Mall, one of the busiest intersections in town. The gunman ordered Susan to use the drive-up ATM. He also sat as far back as he could to avoid being captured by the ATM camera. It worked. The video footage never captured an image of the gunman.
3: You can't see anything throughout the entire video except the two uh, taillights. Uh, we've even sent those pictures off to be uh, analyzed and try to be further developed. We can't get anything out of it.
1: Robin told the man she had about $150 in her account, but he ordered Susan to use her friend's PIN and look up her checking account balance. It showed a much larger sum, but her rent check hadn't cleared yet. It didn't matter to the gunman who demanded that $600 be withdrawn. The ATM could only spit out a maximum of $300. The gunman demanded Susan access Robin's savings account, which had a balance of less than $200. He took most of that. The gunman ordered Susan to drive the car to a parking lot and to open the trunk. That's when Robin, according to what she told police, tried to convince Susan to make a move. She pleaded with her to run and told her that the man wasn't going to shoot her in the middle of the parking lot. Robin, according to police, had even started to dart away from the car. The gunman kept his weapon aimed at Susan and again ordered both her and Robin to get into the trunk. They complied. The gunman was patient. He maintained control of the situation. Granted, he had a weapon, but he also had to corral two women in a parking lot with cameras located along two busy streets, all while people are out shopping for hurricane supplies. He also was dealing with one woman who seemed to be willing to challenge him at any time. In spite of all of that, it's like the gunman was fully prepared for all contingencies.
3: many, many scenarios that could cause a person to act this way. Um, to be honest with you, that's why we want to do this podcast and cooperate and help out. We're hoping this podcast will actually lead to something like that. Somebody out there knows something, and we're hoping they can help describe what kind of individual this was. Could it be someone that's done this a million times in confidence? Absolutely. Could it also be someone who's so desperate that they'll do anything for a dollar at that moment? Obviously.
1: But the women were about to do something that the gunman did not plan for. Robin later told police that Susan did not run because she knew there was a safety latch inside the trunk that would allow her to pop it open. The women got as small as they could and climbed into the trunk with the beach chairs that were inside. The gunman got behind the wheel and got on State Road 436, also known as East Altamont Drive. Susan wasted no time opening the trunk. As soon as she did so, Robin waved her hand outside in an effort to attract attention. The car hit a bump, and that caused the trunk to fly upward and then slam back downward. The women were trapped inside the trunk again. Realizing what the women were doing, the gunman made a hard right on Boston Avenue, a small north and south road that runs parallel to Maitland Avenue. The suspect slammed on the gas. The women opened the trunk again and then jumped out. Robin told police the car was traveling up to 40 miles per hour when she hit the pavement. She landed on her arm and suffered leg and hip injuries. Susan, on the other hand, landed on her head. She was the second to jump out, and she did so just as the gunman was making a 90-degree turn. Robin thinks her friend lost her balance and was thrown onto the pavement. She didn't move after her head struck the ground. Robin said she could hear the impact. The gunman kept driving. Here again is Detective Nuzzy.
3: She was, uh, Susan was very familiar with her surroundings and obviously her vehicle, um, she's ordered a gunpoint in the back of a inside a trunk with another human being, and we're not talking about a large car um, and she was able to uh, grab the emergency handle that releases the trunk and make that effort to escape. Um, obviously, the last thing in her mind was that it was going to end the way it did.
1: Susan remained lying on the ground while cars drove by. Robin tried to flag down a car that was passing by. But the driver told her he had no cell phone and kept going. She flagged down another motorist, who did call for help. Susan was rushed to Florida Hospital Altamont, a few miles away, and then flown to Orlando Regional Medical Center. Susan's sister was home studying. She remembers getting that phone call from an Altamont Springs police officer. It was a
5: horrible phone call. It was, you know, I. A friend of mine had stopped by Um, and you know, things happen for a reason because when she stopped by unannounced, I was a little little frustrated because I was in the middle of doing homework and trying to get things done for the next day. And uh, thank God she did stop by, right? Because I got that phone call while she was there and I remember picking up my phone and looking at it and it said unknown caller. And I thought, well, that's weird. I never get anything that says unknown caller. And I put the cell phone back down and I don't know why, but for some reason, I picked it back up and answered it. And um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a blur because it, it, was, it was very shocking. He identified himself as being with Altamont Springs Police Department and said that my sister had been in an accident or said there was an, there was an accident. And I thought, oh, God, she was driving. There was an accident. Is she OK? I, I remember hearing him saying a man, a gun, a gun. You know and i just my i think my mind just went into to overdrive and i think i just kept asking over and over well she's okay right she's okay right and um the police officer said that she was being taken to the hospital and that somebody would be calling me with more details so we hung up i i called my mom and i told my mom uh the phone call that i had received and she said sarah that just that doesn't sound right, you know, somebody playing a joke on you, I said, God, I don't know anybody that would play such a horrible joke. There's there's no way. Something's wrong here. And so my mom started calling around to the hospitals and sure enough when she called over at Altamont they said, Yeah, we have your daughter here and we're we're airlifting her. Thank God that friend showed up, you know, earlier because she drove me there.
1: Susan's mother lived in Lake Mary. Her brother lived in an apartment building behind Sarah. Her father lived in Orlando. All of them were called, and all of them rushed to Orlando Regional.
5: So, um, my sister still, they hadn't brought her upstairs yet. She was still, like, in the emergency area, you know, and it's like I could, I could feel her there. I knew she was still there. You know, she never regained consciousness, but I knew she was there. Um, it was a really, really hard time.
1: The family was worried, but they hadn't fully grasped the gravity of the moment. They hadn't been informed about the severity of Susan's condition. Not only that, but the doctors and nurses were not zipping around like they do on network medical dramas. They did not appear to be in any hurry. Sarah said she had misinterpreted this to mean that her sister was going to be okay.
5: And then they took her into, you know, to where she was in another room by herself um, for the next several hours and and really... uh, quite frankly, what I came to find out after the fact, you know, I felt like she must be doing okay because it didn't seem like there was a lot of rush around her and and doctors and so forth, Um, but quite frankly, it was because she wasn't okay and, you know, she wasn't going to regain consciousness and they were just waiting the amount of time that they have to in order to do the different tests to see if she would if she would breathe on her own, which they had told us they did not expect her to.
1: There was no brain activity. Susan died from her injuries the next day.
5: You know, I stayed the entire time. Her, uh, her kids came up early in the morning the next day. They weren't there that night. You know, so everybody was able to see her, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that, that we got to see her. Some families are not as lucky to be
1: able to see their loved one. Susan was an organ donor. She saved three lives by doing so. Her mother, to this day, is actively involved with Our Legacy, a nonprofit group based in Central Florida, which spreads the word about organ donations. I want to take a moment to acknowledge how difficult it was for Sarah Wakefield to speak to me about the subject of her sister's murder. She described how much her sister's death shook her and how she gained strength by talking about it. In fact, she started to think she was getting too comfortable telling the story. After a while, she stopped talking about it.
5: Now yeah, I was very, very focused for many years after she passed on the crime and what happened to her. And I was very involved with the investigation and speaking to the police and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, it got to a point where you know, I had to come to the realization that there was a possibility that this was never going to be solved. You know, and instead of focusing on what happened to her and focusing on that night and the hospital and the phone call and all of those things, like I've really just tried to focus for the last many years just on the person she was before that night and the relationship that I had with her. So, you know, at at one point talking about her, her in this way You know, with what happened that night with the hospital, it's like I felt like I had almost become desensitized to it because I told the story so many times, but I haven't in a long time. So it's a little hard having this conversation right now.
1: Robin was questioned by police. She surmised the gunman might have had a military background because he used language she had often heard when she was a Marine. He also spoke crisply and directly, very much like someone who had served in the military. She also told police he smelled like motor oil. Susan's car was found two days later, more than a block from the spa. There was no DNA left behind by the suspect. Detective Nuzzi said leads have been followed in the case. Many were followed during the immediate aftermath. No one seemed to jump to the top of the list of potential suspects. Uh,
3: Throughout the course of any investigation, suspects are developed. It doesn't mean that that individual is necessarily a guilty person. It, it's more commonly referred to as, than a suspect as a person of interest. And uh, leads were followed up on, and they continue to be followed up on to this day.
1: Have you been able to rule out anyone? No, sir. Susan left behind two sons, Russell and Austin, who were 15 and 10 when their mother was killed. Russell was taken care of by his aunt, Sarah while Austin went to live with his father. Susan's mother, Bobby Boyer, moved out of the area. She told the Orlando Sentinel that she was a short distance away at a hardware store buying supplies for the upcoming hurricane when the events involving her daughter were unfolding. She also told the Sentinel in 2005 that any time she hears a helicopter overhead, she thinks about her daughter lying unconscious inside. It's an image she can't shake. It took a lot of years for Sarah to recover from not only the grief of losing her sister, but also her obsession with the case.
5: I knew that I needed to move forward in my life to be able to have a happy life. And you know, my sister and I, she was, she was like my person. You know, she was, she was everything to me. We were so close. And she was such a constant in my life. So when that happened, I was like part of my identity was gone, you know. And I thought nobody could ever know me, ever, without knowing her, you know. And then this wonderful person came into my life, you know, Sean, who I'm married to now. We have two beautiful daughters. And, um, you know, I knew that I had to, to focus on those things.
1: It seems hurricanes have contributed to this case not getting the attention it otherwise would have gotten. That's what Sarah told me. The Orlando media covered it, but not with the same level of intensity it ordinarily would have. The reason is because Florida was being bombarded in 2004 by back-to-back-to-back hurricanes. The following year was also an active hurricane season, so the story got overlooked again during its one-year anniversary. It seemed to keep happening. Even this year, on the 15th anniversary of the killing, Hurricane Dorian passed by the state. My original plan was to interview Sarah and Detective Nuzzy weeks ago, but Dorian altered those plans, thus delaying the release of this episode. Here is Sarah talking about how hurricanes seem to always disrupt any attempt to bring more attention to her sister's case.
5: Even after, like the years after it happened, it's right during hurricane season. I mean, even this year when you and I were going to talk, Dorian was coming through. You know, so even when there has been times where I'm like, okay, maybe we'll really get some media coverage now because it's been the five-year mark or whatever, there's always hurricanes coming through. And, but in that same vein, I think, how did nobody see anything that night? Think about the hurricane that just came through, how people were so nervous. Everybody was out. The news was out, you know, at the publics you know, at Home Depot, showing everybody, grabbing everything off the counters. The parking lot that they were in was right in front of the parking lot in Publix, across from the Altamont Mall, but it's the busiest intersection. And it was, what, 8, 9 o'clock at night, right before a hurricane was coming through and nobody saw anything? I don't buy it. I just don't buy it.
1: Detective Nuzzi also won't give up hope that someone will come forward realizing after all this time that he or she saw something suspicious, even if it didn't seem all that suspicious at the time.
3: The amazing thing about society and people in general is even when you think you didn't see something, there's a good chance you did. Um, As I mentioned, the hurricane was coming, the second hurricane from 2004, right after Charlie was on its way through. And people were still driving about. People were still getting supplies. And uh, safe to say, a lot of people were panicking because Charlie did a lot of damage that we weren't expecting. Um, there were a lot of people out. Again, the things that focus on the red Ford focus. At one point at the bank parking lot, the second victim ran from the car. Anybody driving by, again, an adult female running from a vehicle, tends to stand out. You may think it's people playing around, but and you just drive by and pay no attention to it. But she came back to the vehicle and that's when they were ordered into the trunk of the car. It's very difficult to believe someone didn't see anything or this person who's out there who perpetrated this hasn't talked to somebody. Somebody out there knows something. And I feel comfortable and confident in saying that.
1: He also acknowledged the matter of Hurricane Francis moving the story toward the back pages.
3: That second hurricane caused a lot of panic. Um, I think a lot of people in this day and age, you see a news story of a poor person who has passed away as a result of a criminal act, and it doesn't necessarily get the attention it deserves because of everything else that was in the news. Um, And after the hurricane, a third one came through, and people tend to forget what they've seen, and they believe they don't know anything. Uh, The only thing we can hope for as time goes on, and people like you put this story out there repeatedly that someone who did see or hear something or even knows something will call in. I can't stress enough, even the smallest bit of information is welcomed.
1: I tried to get a hold of the one woman who could paint the clearest picture of what happened the night of August 31st, 2004. Robin Barber did not return my call. Detective Nuzzi preferred not to talk about the impact the crime had on Robin. He did not want to speak on her behalf. He gave me a short answer when I asked him about how forthcoming she has been in the investigation.
3: I can give a statement that when we've asked to inter- when we've been able to make contact with her and asked to interview her, she's cooperated.
1: Sarah was a bit more talkative about Robin, but she too was careful with her words. So
5: no, I do not talk to her. Um, I don't know exactly what has happened to her. I. I think that from what I hear, I think she lives somewhere, uh, she's still here in Florida. Yeah, I don't honestly have a lot to say about her. We were, we were very close when it happened, and we are not at all today.
1: Sarah said she often wonders why her former friend, the last person to see her sister alive and awake, has maintained what Sarah thinks is an indifference to the case.
5: Um, you know, I think everybody deals with things very, very differently. I have a lot of respect for that. You know, everybody mourns differently. Everybody deals with traumatic situations differently. Um, But we dealt with things very, very differently. So much so that I don't feel that it helped the case um, with some of the things that she did afterwards. And quite frankly, it's her case, too. And I just haven't seen a lot of follow through on her part. Yeah, it, it, it definitely divided us.
1: By comparison... Detective Nuzzi has maintained a steady flow of communication with Susan's family.
3: I'm very familiar with the family. I've become very close with them in a working relationship. This family deserves closure. It's a good family. Not that every family doesn't deserve closure, but this family definitely deserves some sort of ending to this.
1: Sarah was very open with me. She was willing to tell me anything that was on her mind. How much her sister meant to her how much her family has dealt with the tragedy and her opinion on how the investigation has been conducted here is the part of our interview during which she was perhaps the most candid with me when i asked her how she has handled the ongoing mystery of that day and whether it has held her back it's one thing to to lose a loved one uh, and it's one it's one thing to lose a loved one to in a situation like this involving a, a homicide um, yeah. but when the case hasn't been solved and to not have that peace of mind when, when you know following an arrest and a conviction an unsolved murder almost robs a person's ability to properly mourn and recover and I was wondering yeah. whether you had that problem whether you wrestled with that
5: you know I, I do um, and I did very, very much so for many years afterwards. Just So many people I would come across, I'd wonder, well, is that him? Does this person know something? You know, I would think, I wonder what they're doing right now. Are they laughing with their family? Are Are they happy? They don't deserve to be happy. What is this person doing in this very moment that I'm sitting here just completely wrecked, you know? it felt really unfair. You know, the fact that, that she was not here, that her boys didn't have her, that she wasn't going to see her boys get married. She wasn't going to be a grandmother, all these things. It's really hard. But at the same time, I also know that you have, you have two choices when something like this happens in your life. You either choose to live or you choose not to, right? And if you choose to live and endure it, then you have to figure out the best way to move forward and have a healthy and a happy life. So I knew that continuing to focus on that was not a healthy thing for me. And even knowing who that person was, I would never know really why it happened or why that person did it, and it would never bring her back. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if I end up knowing who that person is because It won't bring her back. And that's what I tell myself all the time. But I will also tell you, I'd give anything for the day to look that man in the eye.
1: In a story that was published in April 2009 in the Orlando Sentinel, Sarah was quoted in the paper saying, I can't imagine going the rest of my life without that one chance to look him in the eye. I asked her to reflect on that quote. Does she still have that same feeling? And with the same level of intensity from 10 years ago.
5: I do. (laughs) You know, but I think one of the things that has changed between that comment and today is I realize there's a chance that I'll never be able to look him in the eye. And I have to figure out a way to be okay with that if that day doesn't come. But don't think that every single day there isn't a thought in my mind that, maybe today's the day that I get that phone call. Maybe today's the day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think of that.
1: She takes solace in knowing that her sister's case is being handled by Bill Nuzzi.
5: If there's something to be done, I know it's in really good hands. I know that this is the one case, you know, you kind of see the dramatic things on TV and so forth, that the detective has that one case. I think this is his one case. And I know that, that he's doing everything possible, um, and I really wish he would have been on the case from day one. I think maybe you and I wouldn't be having this conversation today if he had been.
1: This isn't the kind of cold case in which people are standing around waiting for a DNA hit. It's also not the kind of murder case in which no one saw anything. At least that's not what Sarah and investigators think. This robbery and fatal escape occurred on a very busy street in a very busy suburb of Orlando.
3: The part that makes it a little bit more emotional, that kind of kicks you in the butt, is this case is very solvable. Somebody knows something, and we're imploring the help of that person today.
1: This also isn't a case that detectives have kept in-house. Nuzzy and others in the department have been very willing to seek help in the hope someone will breathe new life into the investigation.
3: At one point, we've taken everything we had over to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and we met with a case review board. Um, the determination was all investigative leads have been followed up with, and we continue just to kind of tread water and following up with anything new that comes in. Um, we've also had a cold case review board, as part of the uh, National Homicide Investigations Association. We've met with them and gave them the case, and they were not able to even kind of find anything else that we can follow up on that we haven't already. Uh, Every new detective that gets assigned to our criminal investigations division, uh, I make it a point to give them this case book and have them review it. Uh, Fresh eyes can find things that old ones can't. All egos have been put aside. This is not about an individual solving a case. This is about an agency and a community solving a case.
1: Sarah Wakefield is convinced there's more to uncover about that night. Now it's just a matter of someone, anyone, coming forward.
5: I think somebody knows something. I think that the story that was told that night um, is coming from one person's vantage point. Um, I think that that it's a very odd story about what happened that night, and I think that there's a lot of things a lot of things in that story that that don't add up.
1: There's little certainty about what happened on a night 15 years ago in which most Floridians were recovering from one hurricane while preparing for another. In the middle of all that, a promising young woman with two children at home lost her life. Sarah Wakefield and her family continue to wait for answers.
5: All we know is that there's only one thing that we know for sure. And the only thing we know for sure is that my sister didn't survive that night. That's the only thing that I think that I know for sure as to what happened that
1: night. A $5,000 reward is being offered to anyone who can provide information that leads to an arrest and the slaying of Susan Perkins. Those with information are urged to call Crimeline at 1-800-423-TIPS. That's 1-800-423-T-I-P-S. Thank you for listening. Tune in again later this month for an all-new episode of Sun Crime State. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.